it's easy to take matters into our own hands. We all do it. We all do it. It's easy to take matters into our own hands, and it happens all the time. Sometimes it happens during a pandemic when you're experiencing some type of job frustration or loss and then trying to figure out what to do next. And instead of just kind of relying on God, depending on him, you take matters into your own hands. It often shows up in the way we pray. Often we come to God last instead of first into our dependence on him. We take matters into our own hands. We find ourselves in whatever situation or circumstance that we may be in that might be challenging or difficult, and so we're going to strategize or we're going to plan our way out of it. We're going to think our way out of it. We're going to come up with something that will allow us to escape whatever we find ourselves in. And all of a sudden, at the end of it, we're like, oh yeah, and we should pray. We should give this to God. And yet somehow it's an afterthought instead of a forethought. It's what comes at the end instead of at the beginning. But it's hard to do so. It's hard to trust God with your finances when he's asking you to honor him with them, when everything is in ebb and flow and flux, and you're wondering where you may pay the bills next week. Will your job even still be there? It's hard to trust God with your life when the economy has spiraled out of control. I mean, a house this week sold in Toronto, $670,000 over asking. And they didn't underprice it. In fact, the real, estate, the, the, the real estate agents who were commenting on this said that the house was actually priced over market. It was priced at the top of market. It went $670,000 over asking. So who buys a home in that environment? And so maybe we need to live together before we're married, even though God says that's clearly outside of what he wants us to do. I've watched that happen over and over again as people have tried to understand how to trust God in that, as I've had the privilege of working with the Karen uh, for the last 10 years, and very recently, as we've worked with them uh, extensively, it's been a joy to watch God move. And yet, the story has been for many of them, as they renounced their faith, these younger people, and walked away from the Lord, they just kind of moved in together. And in moving in together, they weren't sure then how to navigate this, and where is God in this, and is he even in this? And so in the guilt and shame and frustration, just kind of abandoned their faith. It's hard to trust God. It's hard to trust God. Many of you, not all of you, but will remember Jesse. Jesse was an intern with us. He called himself Intern Light because he was a full-time student at McMaster uh, University in his undergrad. He was here with us for two years. He was part of Cornerstone, Paul Carter's church up in Aurelia, and Jesse was here hanging out with us for a couple of years, interning with us, preached a couple of times, served, led community groups. Well, at one point, he was part of our group at 541, where we'd invited a number of uh, non-Christian friends to join us for dialogue about who Jesus is and to be able to ask a bunch of questions. Several of you were part of that group. We had a great time doing that week after week, and Jesse was praying about bringing someone. Right? Some of us were bringing friends, and, and some of us were bringing skeptics, and those that were agnostic and struggling with faith, some who had at one time had faith and abandoned the faith, and Jesse wanted to come and be part of the group. So he's at the bus stop at McMaster praying that God will grant him someone, right? A guy is standing there who's doing his second PhD. His first PhD is in nuclear physicist. He's a nuclear physicist who's a Jew from Israel, 
studying at Mac, doing his second PhD. And Jesse's not afraid of anything, and so he engages a conversation with this guy. Invites him out to 541. The guy comes. Comes every week. Some of you who were there will remember this. He was there every week. In fact, this past Easter, I got an email from him saying, Pastor Dwayne, still listening to your messages on occasion. Have not come to the place where I've accepted Christ as Messiah, but have really appreciated the group that was there for me. And in my return to Israel, your messages where I'm constantly thinking about what it means about who Jesus is. Jesse's done with us. He goes down to Southern. He begins to study there. He finds a young woman who he falls in love with. They get married. So he stays in America. He begins to pastor a church. And as he pastors a church, he realizes in this smaller church that there's generational sin that's never been dealt with. And he believes it's part of what's holding the church back. And some of it has to do with the elders and their families. So he prayerfully asks God, what do I do? And he decides he's going to address it. He's going to trust God and address it. He addresses it graciously. He addresses it kindly. And the next week he's fired. It can be hard to trust God. It can be hard to trust God. It can be hard at times to figure out what God's calling us to do or in the midst of our circumstances and situations to know what in this moment should I be doing when I'm convinced that God's calling me to this, but everything about my human wisdom says I should be doing this. And that's where we find Jacob in Genesis 30 and 31. If you have your Bibles, it's not going to be on the screens today as I was away all week speaking at a camp and so my notes weren't prepared until Friday and Saturday, so not emailed ahead of time. So Genesis 30, verse 25, on your devices or in your Bibles, turn there and we'll follow along. After Rachel had given birth to Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me on my way so I can go back to my homeland Give me my wives and children for whom I have served you, and I will be on my way. You know how much I've worked for you, but Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, please stay. I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. He added, Name your wages, and I will pay them. Jacob said to him, You know how I have worked for you and how your livestock is fared under my care. The little you uh, had before I came has increased greatly, the Lord has blessed you wherever I have been, but now, when I may, but, but now, sorry, when may I do something for my own household? What shall I give you, he asked. Don't give me anything, Jacob replied, but if you do this one thing for me, I will go on tending your flocks and watching over them. Let me go through all your flocks today and remove from them every speckled and spotted sheep, every dark-colored lamb and every speckled and spotted goat. They will be my wages, and my honesty will testify for me in the future whenever you check on my wages that you have paid me. Any goat in my possession that is not speckled or spotted, or a lamb that is not dark-colored, it will be considered stolen. Agreed, said Laban. Let it be as you have said. And that same day he removed all the male goats, and the streaked and spotted ones, and all the speckled and spotted female goats. All of them had white on them. And all the dark-colored lambs he placed in the care of his sons, then he put a three-day journey between himself and Jacob while Jacob continued to tend the rest of Laban's flock. I'll pause there. I want you to note this because Scripture is very intentional in its wording. In verse 25, it's very clear. Joseph has been born. Joseph has been born to Rachel, right? Jacob ended up in uh, Laban's house, his uncle's house, and he wants to marry Rachel, falls in love with Rachel. On his wedding night, you may recall, when he wakes up the next morning because his wife would have been, or bride would have been very bailed, 
He had never been with her before. He wakes up, and he hasn't married Rachel, but he's married Leah. He says to Laban, what have you done? Laban says, after this is working seven years for Rachel, he says, you now stay another seven years, and you can have Rachel, but you could marry Rachel after one week of being married to Leah, after the wedding week. So he does that. One week after he's married to Leah, he marries Rachel. So that's a long wedding celebration. And then he works for Laban another seven years. During that time, a number of sons are born. And during that time, as these kids are born, he realized he's now worked for Laban for 14 years, and he has a plan. He's going to go home. Joseph's been born. I'm going home. And he's got a plan. Laban negotiates. Laban knows that these are his daughters who have both married Jacob, and these daughters who have both married Jacob have given him children, grandchildren for Laban, and he wants them to stay. Laban also knows selfishly that the blessing that he has experienced, he's experienced because of Jacob. He says it. It's verse 27. I know the Lord has told me, Laban says, that he has blessed me because of you. So he says, name your wages. Well, what is it that you want? And, and this is what Jacob asked for. He said, I don't want any money, but I will take the portion of the flock that no one wants. I will take every speckled, spotted sheep, every dark-colored lamb. They will be my wages. And he says, let me go through your flocks today. I'll take those out, and as they continue to breed, I'll, I'll keep them. What happened? Did you catch it? In verse 34, Laban says, sure. And then Laban, as he's still talking to Jacob and his daughters and grandchildren, says to his you know, herdsmen, hey, go to the flocks, take out all the speckled animals, all the spotted ones, and remove them so that he can't find any. And he does it. I mean, these men just continue to deceive each other. He thinks he's marrying Rachel, but he ends up with Leah, right? There's just deception that continues to go on. I mean, the family dynamics here, if you think you have a broken family, here's one for you. The family dynamics here are so incredibly challenging. And so Laban not only takes all the speckled and spotted ones out, but did you see what the word of God says? It says he put a three-day journey between himself and Jacob. He moved them three days away. So he took a whole portion of his flock, and he, he so doesn't want Jacob to be blessed that moves the flock three days away. Now, this is where it becomes weird. Are you ready? If you've never read this in the Bible, be prepared. Jacob, however, took fresh-cut branches from poplar um, almond and plane trees, and made white strips on them by peeling the bark and exposing the white inner wood on the branches. Then he placed and peeled branches in all the watering troughs so that they would be directly in front of the flocks when they came to drink. When the flocks were in heat and came to drink, they made it in front of the branches. And so they bore young that were streaked, speckled, and spotted. What? Like, this is not a known agricultural theory or practice, just so you know. This is not something that is commonly done today. Let me keep going here. I, I'm just going to tell you it's weird. And I'm going to explain weird in a moment. Jacob set apart the young by the flock by themselves. He made the rest face. Like, oh, sorry. He made the rest face the streaked and dark colored animals that belonged to Laban. Thus, he made separate flocks for himself, and he did not put them with Laban, Laban's animals. 
Whenever the stronger females were in heat, Jacob would place the branches in the troughs in front of the animals so they would mate near the, near the branches. I just find this crazy. But if the animals were weak, he wouldn't place them there. So the weak animals went to Laban, the strong ones went to Jacob. In this way, the man grew exceedingly prosperous and came to own large flocks, male and female servants, camels and donkeys. Did you notice what was missing in verse 37 to verse 43? God. This is a superstition of the day. That's all this was. God didn't ask him to do this. This was a superstition of the day. Why did it work? Why did it work? God chose to bless him through his superstition. That doesn't mean any of us should follow any superstitions. They're wrong. But that's all this was. God didn't ask him to do this. This wasn't God's ordained plan for Jacob to be able to have this larger flock. And yet, just as God placed, chose to bless Abraham in his sin when he was in Egypt, and Pharaoh blessed him in the midst of his sin with a great deal of wealth and livestock and animals and servants, so God, because God in his providence is longing to bless Jacob as part of his plan to eventually bring Messiah, chooses to bless Jacob even in the midst of his sin and unbelief. Now, can I just pause there for a moment? Is that not good news? Because I have unbelief. Because at times I struggle. Because at times I kind of negotiate with God. Anybody ever done that? Bargain with them. And I know God doesn't like it. I know he's not in it. In the sense that it's not part of his providential uh, like calling on my life. But I know God at times, because of grace and grace alone, chooses even in the midst of my unbelief and at times idiocies to remind me that he's with me and he still blesses. And that's what he does with Jacob. God doesn't tell Jacob to do this. This is a superstition of the day that Jacob chooses to adhere to. Just like he decided he wanted to go home and then he didn't go home. He stays there. And the deception that goes back and forth between these men is insurmountable. Note, then Jacob heard, this is chapter 31, verse 1, that Laban's sons were saying, Jacob has taken everything our father owned. He's gained all this wealth from what belonged to our father. Because at this point in time, there were no animals being born that were not spotted. And only the weak ones, he gave the weak ones to Laban. Jacob noticed that Laban's attitude toward him was not what it had been. So Laban's upset. Laban's workers are upset. And note verse 3. Then the Lord said to Jacob. Did you catch that? Earlier on, Jacob said he was going to go. Then Jacob had a plan. Then Jacob negotiated a treaty. Then Jacob decided he would follow a superstition. Now God shows up. God's right here. Then the Lord said to Jacob, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives. I will be with you. He says, Jacob, now it's time. We'll find out in a minute. This is now 20 years. So Jacob served for, for 14 years for the two daughters, Rachel and Leah. And now this has been another seven years, six years, sorry, uh, to get us to 20 years. He'll say this in a moment. So for 20 years, this has gone on. The last six, this whole superstitious thing where Jacob 
flocks and male and female servants and wealth and camels and donkeys has grown exceedingly. And now God says, the Lord, Yahweh, says to Jacob, go back. Go back to the land that I had promised to Abraham and Isaac, your fathers. Note again, at times, God calls Abraham Jacob's father, even though Isaac is his biological father, letting him know that the promise I gave to your grandfather is yours. Here, he says, of your fathers. It's plural. He's saying that what I promised Abraham and what I promised Isaac, I am promising you. Go to your relatives. I will be with you. My presence is with you. God says, I've got this. Aren't you thankful that God is with you, even when you mess up? What does Jesus say when he leaves, right? Great commission. At the beginning of it, he says, all power in heaven and on earth belongs to him. Every ounce of power in the universe is his. And what's he say at the end? I am with you always to the very end of the age. So Jacob sent word to Rachel and Leah to come out to the fields where his flocks were. He said to them, I see that your father's attitude toward me is not what it was before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I've worked for your father with all my strength, that your father has cheated me by changing my wages ten times. However, God has not allowed him to harm me. Somewhere in the midst of all of this, Jacob still recognizes that God is with him. God has been with him, and God has not allowed harm to come to him. And he recognizes that. And it can be true in our own lives, can't it? Sometimes in our own mess, in the own ebb and flow of our belief and disbelief, in the own ebb and flow of our trust and mistrust, in our own ebb and flow of saying, God, you've got this, I'm following you faithfully and fully, and the moments where we go, whoo, got to take matters into my own hands, and I've got to create a plan and purpose, isn't it good to know that we can look back on all of that and at times still say, God was superseding the whole thing. He didn't leave me, he was right there. Isn't it good to know that my salvation is not dependent on my works, but on the accomplished work of Christ, and that his grace is sufficient to cover my sin. Is that not good news? And so Jacob, in the midst of all of that, he comes and he recognizes, even though God was absent for so much of this, in all of his planning and all of his thinking, he goes, wow, God's in this. God, the God of my father, has been with me. God has not allowed Laban to harm me, even though my wages have changed back and forth. And at times we come to our senses. There are moments when we have chosen to take things in our own hands, do things our way, and in that we think that we're somehow purposing something better or greater or good. We come out of it and recognize, wow, that was a great mess. And we can look back and still see that the hand of the Lord God Almighty was with us. Maybe it was in a rebuke. Maybe it was in his discipline. Maybe it was in provision. Maybe it was just in his gracious hand leading it. Maybe it was just God saying, I've still, I've still got this. You know, you look back on your parenting of your kids. I mean, we all do this, right? You look at your kids. Ethan turns 20 in a week, right? Next Sunday is his 20th birthday. And you look back on, on marks like this. He'll no longer be a teenager. You begin to look back and you go, wow, man, Amy, Amy may not think this of, of her, but I think this of me, and I'm, she may think this of me as well. I'm like, I wish there were things I did differently parenting Ethan. I wish there were things I did differently parenting Ethan. I mean, there were hard times. I think he's here out there somewhere, but I mean, there were hard moments. I mean, when I was going to parent-teacher interview, 
Ethan, I love you as I tell this story. And, um, and I'm, I'm heading out the door, and he says, Dad, before you go, it may be that my English mark ain't that great. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, he said, you know, I've told you, like, I've handed everything in so far. He said, I have zero in grade 12 English. I'm like, what? How do you have zero in grade 12 English? He said, you don't hand anything in. They can't mark anything. It's pretty simple, Dad. And in that moment, I was just furious with him. And I can look back on moments like that and wish I'd handled stuff differently. I can say this in his working days, a year and a half in construction, and now working in a, in a machining company. Amy and I have just noted this many times. Wow, he's really maturing. Like just a number of things about him are maturing. Even times when we're not here, when we were away at a cottage a, a few weeks ago and they couldn't come till the Tuesday, Ethan chose to come here. We didn't have to force him, we didn't have to make him, we didn't, he and Abby were here. And I know that that is not because of me or my parenting skills, though I know God has used Amy and I in his life. As I look back on all of my mistakes and the ebbs and flows of things I would have done differently, I can simply say the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ was upon us. God was with us. Through our mistakes, through our struggles, through our, God was there. Through my faithfulness and through my unfaithfulness. Through moments when I prayed faithfully for my kids and diligently and sought God's grace upon them and for moments where it's lapsed. Is that not good news? That God chooses powerfully to walk with his children even when we aren't walking. Verse 8. Again, he speaks of Laban. If he, Laban, said, the speckled ones will be your wages, then all the flocks gave birth to speckled young. If he said, the streaked ones will be your wages, then all the flocks bore streaked youngs. And so God has taken away your father's livestock and given it to me. Jacob realizes that his superstitious stunt didn't work. God, God, God did this. God did this. In breeding season, he says, I once had a dream in which I looked up and saw the male goats mating with the flock uh, were streaked and speckled and spotted. The angel of the Lord said to me in a dream, Jacob, I answered, here I am. And he said, look up and see that all the male goats mating with the flock are streaked, speckled, or spotted. For I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you, and I am the God of Bethel. That was the place where God met Jacob. And the ladder, where we, where we talked about this a few weeks ago. Angels descending and ascending. I am the God of Bethel where you anointed the pillar and where you've made a vow to me. The vow is that he'd one day come back and offer a tenth of everything that God had given him to the Lord. Now leave this land at once and go back to your native land. So we know that this dream is a recent dream because the Lord has said, go back. The Lord has appeared to Jacob and said, go back. And now Jacob's going to walk with the Lord and obey him. So Rachel and Leah said, do we have any share in this inheritance of our father's estate? They said, our brothers are getting the share of the estate. We're not getting anything. Does he not regard us as foreigners? I mean, he's put three days journey between us and him. I mean, our dad doesn't care about us. Not only has he sold us, but he used up what he paid for us. So when a man would give a dowry to the family, typically that would be their inheritance given back years later. The dowry would be given back as the inheritance to the daughters, whatever the man was able to pay as a dowry for his bride. And he said, they say, he's used it up. Surely all the wealth that God took away from our father belongs to us and our children. Do whatever God has told you. And so they do. Verse 17, I'm just going to keep going here. There's a ton of verses. 
So Jacob put his children and his wives on camels. He drove all his livestock ahead of him, along with all the goods he'd accumulate in uh, Paddan Aram and he, uh, to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. When Laban had gone to shear his sheep, though, Rachel stole her, fa- stole her father's household gods. Moreover, Jacob deceived Laban, the uh, Aramean, by not telling him he was running away. So Jacob, again, this deception just continues to run through here. So he fled with all he had. He crossed the Euphrates River. He headed out toward the country of Gilead. There was no need for Jacob to run away. What had God told him? God had told him, I will be, God had told him to go, and God had told him, I will be with you. I mean, the Bible comments that he deceives Laban by running away because he didn't need to. He could have gone to Laban this time. The first time he goes to Laban, Laban negotiates. The second time God is telling him to do it, he could have gone, he could have negotiated, and he would have been able to go. God, I believe, would have spoken to Laban and let him go. But Jacob is fearful because his first plan didn't work six years ago. God's told him to go. He's going to walk in obedience, but he's still going to take the plan in his own hands. So he's going to flee at night. That's why the Bible says he deceived Laban. It's not an honorable thing what Jacob's doing. On the third day, Laban was told Jacob had fled, fled. Taking his relatives with him, he pursued Jacob for seven days. He caught up with him in the hill country of Gilead. Then God came to Laban in the dream at night and said to him, Do not say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. God warned Laban that you are not in any way to offer commentary on what he's doing. You are to let him go. So Jacob had pitched his tent in the whole country of Gilead when Laban overtook him. And Laban and his relatives camped there too. Then Laban said to Jacob, what have you done? You've deceived me. You've carried my daughters off like captives in war. Why did you run off secretly and deceive me? Why didn't you tell me so I could send you away with joy and singing and harps and music? You didn't even let me kiss my children and grandchildren and my daughters goodbye. You've done a foolish thing. I have the power to harm you. But last night, the God of your father said to me, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. So you can see here, you have a man who feels ripped off. He's angry as a father and grandfather, but he's also angry as a businessman because Jacob has just taken all of his wealth. Now it's Jacob's, and so there's this mixed motives, right? He wasn't just coming to say goodbye. He says to him, just so you know, I have the power to harm you. Don't forget that. But God told me not to. He wasn't just coming to say, hey, Rachel, Leah, big hugs for for dad here, eh? Right? Kids, come on over to grandpa. Come over to pops. That wasn't what was going on here, although that was part of it. I mean, likely he was going to go kill Jacob or bring him back as captive of war and bring back his daughters and, and, and his grandchildren. But God intervened. God said, no. God said, you are not to say anything good or bad, let alone do anything good or bad. Like, that's the point of what God's saying there. Not only are you not to do anything good or bad, you are not to say anything good or bad. You are just to remain neutral. Jacob answered him. Oh, wait, sorry. Uh, I don't know where I left off there. A big, big, verse 30. Now uh, you have gone off because you long to return to your father's household. Why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered Laban, I was afraid because I thought you would take your daughters away from me by force. And he was right. But if you find anyone who has your gods, that person shall not live. 
in the presence of our relatives, see for yourself whether or not there is anything of yours, heareth me, and if so, take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen the gods. Now, gods that can be stolen evidently are not gods. Gods that can be stolen evidently are not powerful. Gods that can be stolen evidently are nothing. They're, they're, they don't exist. And I want you to know the irony of what happens to these gods. So Laban went to Jacob's tent and Leah's tent, and in the tent of the two female servants, he found nothing. He came out of Leah's tent, he entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel, Rachel had taken the household gods, put them inside of her camel's saddle, and now she was sitting on them. Laban searched for everything in the tent, but found nothing. Rachel said to her father, don't be angry, my lord. I cannot stand up in your presence. I'm having my period. I'm menstruating on the gods. I just want to leave it right there. So he, sorry, that's what the text is saying. So he searched, but he could not find the household gods. Amy Graham, that was a great laugh right there in that moment. So Jacob was angry. He took Laban to task. He says, what is my crime? He said to Laban, how have I wronged you that you hunt me down? Now you've searched through all my goods and you've found what belongs to your household. Put it here in front of your relatives and mine and let them judge between the two of us. I mean, he doesn't know they're there. And now he's saying, look, you've wronged me. I have been with you for 20 years. That's where we get the 20 years from. Your sheep and goats um, that have miscarried or have been eaten by rams, I didn't take them from my flock. He said, anytime anything went wrong, there was a miscarriage. Um, I, I have not then taken that from you. I did not bring you animals torn by wild beasts. I bore that loss myself, and you demanded payment of me, whatever was stolen by day and night. This was my situation. The heat consumed me in the daytime. The cold at night, the sleep fled from my eyes. It was like this for 20 years. I was in your household. I worked for you 14 years for your two daughters, six years for your flock. You changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac had not been with me, you would have sent me away empty-handed. But God has seen my hardship, the toil of my hands, and last night he rebuked you. So Laban answered him, the women are my daughters, the children my children, the flocks are my flocks, all you see is mine. Yet what can I do today about these daughters of mine or the children they have borne? Come now, let's make a covenant between you and I and serve as witness between us. So they take a stone as a pillar, sent it to his relatives, gather up some stones. They took the stones, they piled them in a heap, they ate the heap. Laban then called it Jagar Sabadura. Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me. This is why it was called Galid. It is also called Mizpah, because he said, may the Lord keep watch between you and me when we are away from each other. If you mistreat my daughters or take any other wives besides my daughters, even though no one is with us, remember God is a witness. So Laban says, I want you to take care of my, of my children, my daughters. And even though you have two wives and you've taken their maidservants as your wives, Paul talked about that last week as you continue to give birth to children, um, so that now there's 11 of them. He says, if you take any others, if you add any more to this family, God will be my witness. God will be the one who will judge. Laban also said to Jacob, here is this heap. This is the pillar I have set up between you and me. The heap is a witness. This pillar is a witness that I will not go past this heap on your side to harm you and you will not go past this heap and pillar on my side to harm me. Now that is family dysfunction at its best. We're going to just set up like a barrier here. 
so that you don't come across and hurt me and I don't come across and hurt you. I mean, I know we all think we have some family dysfunction and some of us may be able to relate to this kind of to this level, but most of us, this is just another world. May the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of the Father judge between us. So Jacob took an oath. In the name of the fear of his father Isaac, he offered a sacrifice there in the hill country, invited his relatives to a meal, so they all ate together. This is Laban, his family, uh, this is his daughters, this is everyone. After that, they had eaten, they spent the night there. The next morning, Laban kissed his grandchildren and daughters and blessed them, and he returned, left and returned home. I just want to take five minutes and explain this quick. That was a lot of Bible reading. So we come to a text like this and say, what do we do with this? Like, what do we do with this text? Why has God placed these two chapters in his word? Why are they even there? Let me offer a few quick things. The one is this, that we are to be in dependence on God, discerning how he would have us to live. Did you note the transition? At one point, Jacob was like, let's go. Laban negotiated him not going. Then at the next point, God says to Jacob, you are to go. But Jacob still takes matters into his own hands. And so one of the things that we're to learn out of this is we're not to take matters into our own hands. We do it. I mean, how often have we done it through the pandemic? How often do we take matters into our own hands when we're making decisions day after day? How often are we really seeking God's face about decisions that we're making, about how we're entrusting or trusting him, what those things look like? Whether it be family matters, whether it be business matters, whether it be work matters, whether it be house matters. I mean, I was meeting with some people recently who were talking about moving, and they were talking about moving Christian people from one place to another, and talking about this, and talking about the amount of money they could make off their house, and talking about if they bought in this area, you know, the capital would be left, and blah, 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 blah. And as we were talking this conversation, I just paused and said, have you guys really sought the Lord in prayer about this? And they paused and looked at me and said, we haven't prayed about this once. Because this is what we do. We make plans. We make plans. We see market and flux and ebb and flow and think, wow, if I sold my house here and moved my house there, I could just do this. But, I mean, where you buy your house, where you live in your apartment, those are some of the most crucial decisions you'll ever make in your life. Because those neighbors are the neighbors that God's calling you to be a witness to. That place is the place where you'll be establishing home and family. I mean, we should be praying diligently about where we live, about where God would have us, about what that would look like, about why he would place us there, about what that looks like for the neighbor. And we don't just buy a house. The, the first thing on your list of buying a house should be this, that this will be a ministry center for the Lord. That should be the first thing on your list. Of course, there's other things that come into play, right? Sometimes you need accessibility. Sometimes you need, what you, you just keep naming it, right? Whatever it would be. One-car garage, workshop. I mean, all those things are important. But too often, we prioritize, and, and never does it make the list that I'm looking for a place where we're establishing a ministry center for Jesus. Because we just make decisions. And the first thing we need to learn, and we can see it out of this text, is, oh, God, May I depend on you for every decision I make. May I be dependent on you for that. Num number two, that I will act when God calls. That when I hear the voice of God, when I actually hear him say, when, 
either it's through the word and God has clearly called me to something or it's in his still small voice speaking to me where through his proddings he's saying that this is the next step that I'll just act in faith. I'll act in obedience. I'll trust that the God who's calling me is the God who's with me and I'll walk in obedience to what he's asked me to do. So Jesse Stewart, I believe graciously, lovingly, kindly addresses the sin in the midst at his church. Some dealing with the elders and their children. And their children living with people before they're married to them and all kinds of stuff. And he's fired. And he's then contemplating what to do. Does he come back up to Canada because he's wanted to come up to Canada? Does he? And the next week, the, a group from the church, a couple of the elders that were outvoted and a large contingent from the church meet with him and say, we don't believe God's blessing is upon this place. Would you be willing to lead us still? He thinks about it, prays about it, talks to some godly counsel about it, and launches a new church with three quarters of the church. And he said, I saw him two weeks ago at Jordy's wedding. Jordy's a part of our church now. Jesse's younger brother, who's seven years younger than him, and Jordy's the one leading our young adults, and I had the privilege of officiating at Jordy's wedding with him and Kylie. Jordy, 20, Kylie, 19. Woo! And... Um, Lots of premarital, and uh, I'm just having fun. And, and, and at the wedding, J J Jesse was there, and so Jesse and I had this conversation that was there, and I asked him how it was going, and he said, Dwayne, in a way that I never experienced previously at this, for, at this church, God has granted a freedom in what he's doing. He said he's beginning to work in people's lives. People are coming to faith in Christ, and he said, not that this is the full indicator, but our giving went up three times with less people. Our giving went up three times with less people because people saw that the Lord was in this. I remember at Easter when I was baptizing Ari, and Ari's one of the Karen young men. He's been meeting with me Sunday afternoons for the Bible study this afternoon. We have two more baptisms. You're welcome to join us here if you want at 2 o'clock. Uh, some of it will be in English because I'll be reading their testimonies translated. I'll be, I'll be speaking for a few minutes, but we're baptizing two more of the Karen young adults. I'm so excited about the work that God's doing in their lives. And uh, Ari's a bit older. He's 28. And as uh, he had moved in with his girlfriend, they had given birth to a, a young son, Oscar, a beautiful baby boy, um, but had done all of that, not married, and, and had come here, heard me preach, fell under the conviction of God's word. And at some point during this, a few months uh, um, prior when he had told me that God had saved him and we were having these conversations about this and what he should do I said well man like, like I know you guys are having a baby I know all this is going on I know you want to get married but, but you know you guys cannot be having intercourse uh, between now and the time you're, you're, you're married like if you're wanting to honor the Lord these are some of the things you do so I would encourage you guys you need to figure out a living system I didn't know this that day he moved out and moved back in with his parents because he wanted to honor the Lord. Now it was complicated because there's a baby on the way and then the baby was born and driving back and forth from Hamilton to Brantford because she's in Brantford, he's here. But he just said, this is what God wants. This is what God wants. And then in one of the conversations that we were having recently at one of the Bible studies while he was there and we were talking through what, what was going on in his life, he just smiled at me and he said, I've never been more alive than I am right now. I thought I was alive. This is what he said. I thought I was alive. 
But he said, when I've learned to trust God, when I've learned to follow him, when I've learned to walk, I've, I've realized I've never been this alive ever before. Because that's what God does. All of a sudden you realize as you step out in faith, as you walk in his ways, as you trust him, as you depend upon him. I mean, that's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, right? Trust in the Lord with how much with all of your heart. Never lean on your own understanding because it's faulty. In every way, in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will take your path and make it straight. And that's what he's experienced. That God can make my path straight. That God can walk with me in such a way that I can honor him and I can feel alive like I've never felt before. I've never felt before. So that's the third thing. That you trust in God's providential care. That just like he said to Jacob, I will be with you. He said it to us, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. We trust in God's providential care because this is the good news. I've said this to you so many times, but this is just true. Any God who would choose to cloak his deity with humanity and come down here, any God who would choose to be born of a virgin, first confine himself to a woman's womb, for nine months, be born of a virgin, helpless, who would have to learn how to put his sandals on, have to learn how to speak. I mean, what does John 1 tell us? That in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, that all things were created by him, that the spoken Word, who was the living Word, who became the incarnate Word, that the one who spoke the universe into existence existence chose to learn to speak again is that not miraculous why because he loved you that much because he was the solution to our sin he was the solution to our problem it was him humanity deserved to die because humanity had sin and so we deserve death we deserve damnation we deserve hell we deserve separation but Jesus, in wanting a relationship with us, chose to go through damnation and separation on the cross, which is why he finally cries out as he who was sinless, having never sinned in his 33-some-odd years. The Bible tells us, became our sin on the cross. It's why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? And he was forsaken so that we could be welcomed in. Three days later, the power of the Father raised him to life again. And any God who would choose to go through that for you, any God who would choose to love you that much, who would choose to love me that much, can I tell you this? That God is never out to ruin your life. He's out to give you life in abundance. That is the good news. And every time I go to take my life back into my own hands, Every time I want to strategize some type of conversation with my children, although, of course, I need to talk to my children. Every time I want to plan whatever it is for Amy and I for the next step, whether it's for the church or for the business or for our lives or whatever it be, oh, God, would I prayerfully be dependent on you? Would I act when you are calling? Would I do so in obedience? And in faith, would I trust you? Would you pray with me? You are God and you are good, and we're so thankful for your grace in our lives and the hope that we have in you, Lord Jesus. 
And like Jacob, we confess and admit that so often we take our lives into our own hands and it just ends up in a mess. God's such a mess that these two men at the end won't even cross a certain boundary because they don't trust each other. God, may you cause us to listen to you, to walk with you, to hear from you, to follow you. And we're thankful, Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice for us that reminds us that even in the midst of and at times in spite of our sin, you choose to love us. God, your grace is that great that it covers our sin. And so we ask, God, that you would help us to hear from you. You would help us to depend on you. You would help us to walk faithfully when you call us to in the ways you're asking us to. And you would help us to trust you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to transition now to a moment where we're going to take a cup. And if you didn't get one, they're on the table out in the foyer. Who's this cup for? This cup, a wafer at the top that represents the blood, uh, the bread, uh, the body of Christ. The bread representing the body of Christ. Juice representing the blood of Christ. This is for anyone here today who's a believer. You don't need to be a member of our church, but if God has saved you, if you're sitting here today and you know that you are a child of God, God has saved you, we invite you to take this cup and to celebrate who Jesus is. This is what the Word of God tells us. It's found in the Gospel of Matthew, the 26th chapter. The Word of God says this. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup, and he, after he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He leaves us something so incredibly tangible, Bread that reminds us that he incarnated himself. Bread that reminds us that he came down. Bread that reminds us that his body was broken. And juice, wine in their day, that reminds us that his blood was shed. That reminds us that so that we could be reunited with him, his body was broken, he incarnated himself, his blood was shed. And he did so, so that our blood need not be shed. The wrath of the Father never need be poured on us. When Christ called out, it is finished on the cross, it was because he'd gone through hell on the cross. And Christ went through hell on the cross, so we never need to. Is that not good news? Because Jesus went through hell, I never need be there. I never need go there. I never need experience it. Because Jesus did that for me. And so he says, take this cup, and this bread, and remember me. Remember my love for you, remember my grace for you, remember my hope for you, remember my death, remember my resurrection, remember I am in you, remember me. And maybe today you're like me and you can remember all of the ways that you have dishonored the Lord, all the ways like Jacob that you've walked from him, all the ways you have mistrusted him, all the ways you have taken matters into your own hands. Praise his name. His grace is sufficient for me and for you. Praise his name. His love is beyond anything ever to be experienced anywhere else. And he says to you, I offer you grace today. I offer you grace. So we're going to sing a song. As we sing this song, we invite you 
as you are so led by God, after you spend a few moments just thanking him and examining yourself, we invite you to take this wafer and drink this juice and remember Jesus. Would you pray with me? We give thanks, Lord Jesus, for your broken body and your shed blood on our behalf. We are thankful, O Father, that you loved us so much that you sent your Son. And we're thankful, Jesus, that you came. And now, Lord Jesus, as we spend these few minutes remembering you, Spirit of God, we pray that you would just bring to mind the ways that the Lord Jesus has shown us grace. So, Spirit of God, even now in our midst as you are in us, would you remind each of us of his grace? God, if some of us are here today and we don't know you, would today be the day where we turn to you for salvation? And God, would you just bring your convicting spirit upon us to the point where we would turn from sin and trust Jesus? And for those of us that know you today, if we're overcome with our sin, overwhelmed with our wrong, may your grace in a powerful way rush over us. May you lavish us with grace so we may be reminded of the greatness of our God. We pray this in the powerful resurrected name of Jesus the Lord. Amen. As we sing this song, may you reflect on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you're at that time where you're ready, may you celebrate his body and blood.